Hello, it's Rory Smith here. I can't be with you for this week's episode of Set Piece Menu, and I'm deeply sorry about that. I have to spend my day looking after an actual toddler rather than a figurative one in Chinch. But I wanted to contribute anyway, so you didn't miss me too much, because I know an episode of Set Piece Menu isn't the same without a seven-minute monologue making a really obvious point. So you will still hear my voice throughout the episode, making basically the same points that I make every episode. There are times when it's helpful to be so formulaic. I hope you enjoy it. I hope the other three held the fort in my absence, and I'll be back again next week. I'm glad we replaced my plane impressions for this conversation because no, this is actually <laughs> this is real life, not people doing yeah, it's, inside planes. It's, we went down to so where where we are is sort of like slap bang in the middle of South Devon, but you really have to get in a car to do anything. You have to get in a car. Yeah, yeah. And okay. most most of anything that you want to do is a uh, even though it's like fourteen. 14 miles in any direction to the beach yeah we don't, we don't mind that it's just actually just trying to find somewhere to stay everything for the dates we only want kind of two nights but it's just full everywhere in, in july chinch Stephen has gone to devon um and is able to be with us partly today because um it is in his little sliver of southwest england going to yeah. rain and yet he has gone to that part for the sunshine, and yet here in the northwest of England, glorious, unbroken sunshine. It's too, it's too hot, if anything. Ninety-six here, hours. Too hot, if anything. Yeah, but how how much time did you spend on the beach in the last three days? I'm, Is it I'm raining on the have... beach. I'd rather be on a dry street than a wet beach. It was it was Portugal esque on the really? beach yesterday. Can you not tell from my tan? Uh... But it, you take pretty your top even, off, we could probably see. Pretty even spread chinch as well. So uh, really, did you did you rotate like a rotisserie chicken? I was chilling out on the beach, playing football, cricket, tennis with the boys, having a little paddle, Aww. reading a book, drinking a couple of beers. What? I think I, I think I can cope with a little bit of drizzle this morning whilst I speak to you, goons. 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 We should be grateful because without without that he wouldn't have had an excuse to have a what he is what he is entitled despite it being at the end of the season or beyond the end of the season a prep day. So yes. whilst whilst the yes. kids go go to Peter Rabbit too and a cider yes. press which apparently didn't interest Stephen he is interested instead in you know getting to talk to us but more importantly prepping prepping prepping. I have a couple of upcoming international football commentaries to get my my head around. I was so, uh, I'm on, tell me tell me who you're doing. I'm doing uh, Hungary's pre-Euro 2020 warm-up oh, matches against. You? I might speak to you because I'm. We did Hungary together in yeah. the the playoffs for the for the Euros. Didn't I did it brilliantly, we? didn't I, we, I, Steve? We were tremendous. Of course we did. <laughs> yeah, I did yeah, Hungary yeah, yeah. all the way through the Nations League and all the way through a European Championship qualifying. So I'm I a bit. So by like the end of qualifying, were you full? You weren't hungry what? anymore. <laughs> I, what? Do you know what? Do you know what? I I. <laughs> I have watched hungry so often that when I write the word hungry to say I need something to eat, I spell it incorrectly. <laughs> this is Set Beast Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Andy Hinchcliffe, back from Wembley, and Stephen Wyeth, still in Devon, where there were no major trophies on offer at the weekend, but where he still promises that there has been a major Wi-Fi upgrade. Rory Smith is back from Porto, but unable to be with us today. He has walked back into the combined hell of days off, COVID tests and half term. Oh, uh, I, oh, I, assumed he was in the, I assumed he was still in the queue at Porto Airport for his uh, exit <laughs> COVID test. Is that not the case? I'd say Steve is 95% right. The food is chinch. Uh, I know it's probably not the right time of day to be eating this type of food, but I, I want to throw a question out to, uh, to you. I want to throw a question out there to you. Got there in the end. Florentines. Are you fans of Florentines? Now, Steve, the big question. Milk chocolate or dark chocolate? I've had both. And at the moment, I've got dark chocolate Florentines. And I think the bitterness and the sweetness work perfectly. But Nikki's airing on the side of milk chocolate with Florentines. Where do you sit on this, sir, on this major talking point? On, on all chocolate-related matters, Chinch, I am more of a milk chocolate guy but okay. i do think florentines are the the one area in which dark chocolate can be deemed acceptable wow i think it's important to realize that this part of the conversation at the very least is going to be the most alienating part of our conversation we will try and include more people than just middle class white men from both both parts of little england cheshire and devon a little bit later on the football is chinch do you know what we're talking about today 
was I in the loop for this one? Or do you have that? You know that we have those. Do you have those two groups? One that involves me that I don't really learn anything from, and the other one where you decide what we're talking about and then spring the subject on me later. So I look foolish. So the answer ultimately is no. Well, the answer to the question that you posed is both yes and indeed yes, but which is fitting, funnily enough, because we will attempt to assert something that shouldn't need asserting. But in the wake of the Champions League final, we are reminded that it remains necessary. It is this, that two things can be true. Pep Guardiola seemed determined to maintain the one narrative surrounding him that his acolytes get most frustrated with, but then his adversaries, such as they are, have decided this is the only thing to ever affect a significant football match in which Pep is involved. It may well be that the Manchester City manager picked the wrong team, but can't it also be true that the team that he picked could have beaten Chelsea if they played better? We will extrapolate that rather narrow argument to asking about preparation versus performance and whether you can win without one of them hitting its mark. And don't worry, there will be deep and important discussion about the 1995 FA Cup final. That is uh, all to come. <laughs> and that, that, the, a, a coder added uh, as a result of what you told me just prior to me saying all that. Uh, you can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube as well. Now, remember a little while ago, Bryn Griffiths sent us a limerick. Uh, it was not necessarily received with universal praise, but that has not dimmed his enthusiasm, as here is an email from Bryn Griffiths. Hugh, thank you so much for reading out my limerick. You did the best you could, and I apologise that it inadvertently led to you being on the receiving end of abuse. So here is my apology limerick. There was once a man from Surrey who tried to write a limerick in a hurry, but try as he might, he couldn't just get it right. But this one can finish like Glenn Murray. Uh, keep up the great chats. Thank you. That's from Bryn Griffiths. And I thought it would be a fitting tribute to Glenn Murray, who retired from football this week. Glenn Murray must be gutted as well, because his long-standing goal-scoring record in the championship has been smashed by Ivan Tony. So we're going to have to have a limerick about Ivan Tony. I think they're two words we can really work with. We could get a cracking limerick from that. But Glenn Murray, actually, lovely chap. He was actually in our studio for the championship playoff final, uh, partly because his record had been smashed by Ivan Tony. But what a lovely chap. Didn't mention retirement and then sprung it on the world <laughs> two days later. Uh, well, congratulations to Glenn Murray for uh, both of those things, having a record smashed um, and indeed retiring. Um, so, Bryn, if you would like to uh, furnish us with another limerick, but this time the subject being Ivan Tony. Uh, we would be supremely grateful. Last week, um, we also revealed for those too lazy to type in a simple URL to their web browser, the SPM PLPL champion. It was, of course, Jacob Davis. Or was it? Here's Michael Zakaim with an email. Dear Crooked Hillary, Lion Ted, Little Marco and Sleepy Joe. As this year's SPM PLPL second place finisher, I refuse to concede. These results are clearly rigged. I won this competition and believe me, I won big. A lot of people are saying I got numbers nobody's ever seen before. As the host of this failing podcast with low ratings, I demand a recount. Stop the steal, do what's right and declare me the winner or you'll be hearing from my personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. It'd be a real shame if something happened to your lucrative manscaped sponsorship. He says incredibly threateningly, Ooh. unaware of how little it pays us. Sincerely, Michael Zakim, winner of SPM PLPL. We have controversy. Is, is Michael going to get up a, a posse with pitchforks and flaming torches and storm one of our houses? If you're going to do that, Michael, can you storm Hugh's house, please? Uh, all being well, by the time he gets around to doing that, we will have moved. So that's fine. Um... <laughs> How many times do we need to recount? And do we need to go back to Georgia several times to try to <laughs> whether or not? He is capable of uh, closing the gap by a couple of points. Yeah, they're still doing it in Arizona. So given that, it's going to be another eight months or so. Uh, good luck to your efforts, Michael. We will not be helping you. Uh, meanwhile, it's always nice to hear from Andrew Watts Morgan, particularly this week for reasons that will become clear. Hi there, Champions League, Europa League, Cup Winners' Cup and Conference League. Hope you're all doing well and thanks as ever for the ex exceptional content. SPM is very much top of my podcast schedule. I'm writing to you as an overjoyed Brentford fan. Looking forward to seeing us in the Premier League next season. It'll be the biggest thing to happen in Brentford since Audley Harrison fighting at the local leisure centre. Chinch was excellent as ever on commentary and I'm glad he had learned from his previous error and didn't think it was QPR and their press officer <laughs> who had been promoted. <laughs> also, on the great squirrel squirrel discussion, I was interested to see on the Masked Singer spin-off, the Masked Dancer, that one of the contestants was in a squirrel costume. <laughs> 
He wonders if it's a coincidence after the repeated mentions on SPM. I think not, he says. I look forward, says Andrew, to the show receiving press coverage in America as a result, and also to seeing Squirrel unmasked as the 1995 Cup winner, Andy Hinchcliffe. Yours, <clears> Andrew Watts Morgan. Chinchy, you on the masked dancer? Can you reveal that to us? Or are that Dance, also uh, I've, only, I've only really ever danced once in my life, and I was forced into that at my... No, no, I did. I, well, I wasn't dancing at my second wedding, but my first wedding, I was forced into it. I, I hate dancing. I hate, I hate being out. I just haven't got the moves. I haven't got the hips for it. But on the on my second wedding, I was I, I basically I was drunk, so I was lolling about. But I'll I'll say that I was dancing. It was awful. Unfortunately, Andrew's email has brought back something, a memory from the journey to Devon, which I was hoping had already been squeezed out of my head which was that Hugh called whilst we were sat in horrific traffic on the M5. Traffic so bad that at one point, my sat-nav said that we were experiencing traffic delays of more than 99 hours, which I'm assuming was a glitch, but felt at, the, at that point in time, like it could have been possible. Anyway, Hugh called, <laughs> and at one point during the call, with my children in the back seat, dropped the F-bomb, much to their amusement. And we also had a, a conversation related to SPM matters in which both Buffalo and Squirrel came up. And I was therefore forced to spend a large majority of the rest of the time whilst crawling through holiday traffic, explaining the genesis of both Buffalo <laughs> and Squirrel in relation to this podcast. That is time that I will never get back. Very important time that you spent. And how much quicker did the rest of the journey go? Much quicker uh, because you were trying to explain what an F-bomb was to your children. Um, Chinch, briefly on Brentford, because uh, you did the game on Saturday. You have often been uh, talking up the, the work that Brentford have done, the football mm. they play. How delighted are you they're going to be a Premier League team? And will Thomas Frank come on the pod and talk to us? It's uh, Well, let's hope. Yes, I could maybe try and wangle that, but it, no more than they deserve. I think for the last couple of seasons, they have been... Uh, one of the top two sides in the championship. So it is about time. But you do start to worry when last season they don't make it, sell a couple of their best players, Ben Rahm and Watkins, and then they managed to do it all over again. If it hadn't happened this time, there's Ivan Tony who has smashed Glenn Murray's goal-scoring record. He could be sold. Uh, Rico Henry, they've got some very good players. But again, I think during the commentary, we talked a lot about the player procurement, about the analysis, how they get their players in, how they bring their coaches in and how they all work to, together to achieve success. It was just, it's a great story. They play great football, a, a, a thoroughly modern club that deserves its chance in the Premier League. Very interested to see how they do. I'm not sure they'll do maybe as well as, as Leeds because they don't quite go at it like Bielsa does, but interested to see how they do and they deserve to have this shot at it. Chinch, will they have a pragmatic approach to, to being promoted to the Premier League? Will um, they be coming at it thinking, we're just going to aim to finish fourth bottom? Or will they continue to try and play the way they play, stick to the same philosophy and accept that they might go back down, but they will go back down with a huge amount of money in their pocket to enable them to continue the, the development along the path that they've been on? Doing yeah, Norwich, not, basically. Yeah. yeah, basically, I think you've got to yeah. do, you look at Leeds and you look at Norwich and you say, well... It's always better to be Leeds and really go at it and finish in the top 10. But Norwich, again, if you get the balance right, okay, you go down to come back up again. And that maybe gives you a better chance of the next five years of becoming a regular Premier League team. Maybe Brentford, I don't think Brentford will change. Their philosophy will stay the same as long as they keep their players and they'll be very particular about who they, they add to the squad. But that's going to be the real challenge as well. You step up to the Premier League, you are going to need maybe four or five better players, but better Brentford players for the, for the style of football and the way they like to bring players in. So getting that balance now... Was always going to be the challenge, cutting your cloth for the Premier for the Championship and getting it right, getting promoted. Now, what do they do? Again, with Leeds, you've seen them spend a bit of money on just the right type of player for the type of football they play. Brentford will do the same. Norwich have done the same thing. I'm sure Watford will probably go down that road as well. So again, it's getting that plan in place and not being knocked off course because suddenly the money comes flying in and you're in a in a better league against better teams. Stick to what's got you there, but just. Again, slowly develop the team. I think they'll be fine, even with the, the team that they've got at the moment. I would be surprised if they were immediately relegated. Finally, we have further correspondence from our Bear correspondent. Uh, Robbie Harms is neither Robbie Walls nor Robbie Wells, but he says this. Dear Jack Reachcliffe and his fanboys. Uh, first off, I cannot wait to eat at Piccolino's. He says, uh, after the comments from uh, last week from Mrs. Hinchcliffe. Secondly, 
We recently had our first child, which means listening to podcasts has taken a back seat to more pressing tasks like trying to keep straight the differences between things called mamaroos and dockertots. All of this is to say I've been meaning to send this email for a while, but wanted to wait until I caught up to the present pod. And to my own surprise, it's not about bears, although the title bear correspondent Robbie Harms now sits atop my resume. Uh, my friend in grad school introduced me to this game called Band Name. The premise is simple. Anytime you heard a strange phrase, you took it out of context and said band name. He had compiled a list of close to 200 names at that point. Later, I started doing the same thing, yielding bad names like Triangular Misbehaviour, Azkaban Childhood Jam and Ghost Semantics. And last year, or before actually, I realised that Set Piece Menu was a perfect laboratory for this game. So every time one of you said something that stuck out to me, I wrote it down in a note on my phone. If I was driving, I waited until I got home. Below, in somewhat chronological order, is the list of band names your pod has contributed to my list. Buffaloes get leeway. Have to explain that to your children. <laughs> Tyranny of Kellogg's. Insidious Tomatoes. Nocturnal Fantasies. Metaphorical Cattle Prod. Sharp on the Herbs. Tyranny of the Vanilla Mainstream. We're big on tyranny on this podcast. Mm. Stephen Hughes Chompfest. <laughs> Excellent informative cess. Vinyl Purism. Maybe the best actual band name of the bunch. Yeah, that's good, yeah. Rhythmic Limitations. Maybe the worst actual band name of the bunch. <laughs> Tropical Apparition. Chugging <laughs> Pendulum. Feverish Theft. I don't remember. Do you remember any of these, Steve? <laughs> any of them? You might remember sound this great. one. They sound great, though. This is Robbie's favourite, although he can't explain why. Act of God, Kyle Walker. <laughs> which uh, is a recent one from a recent pod. And finally, Predict My Puddings. Uh, again, recent. Uh, thanks, as always, for the fantastic work and stay well. That's from Robbie Harms. Correspondents of any kind, including band names, in addition to those that uh, you might surface as a result of the same uh, set of circumstances, uh, to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, from the moment about 75 minutes before kickoff, that the teams for the Champions League final were released. It became clear that the reason for any failure, potential at that point, of course, by Manchester City to win the game will have been because of those 11 names picked by Pep Guardiola. No pivot, the season's top goal scorer and Rory's personal friend, Ilkay Gundogan, too far back to influence the game. Also, Raheem Sterling, we've railed against predetermined narratives before, but was this Pep trolling us, us, just us, just the podcast by saying, let's lean into this overthinking thing by making the very decisions that perpetuates that narrative. But was that really the reason that City lost to Chelsea and Porto? Or more importantly, the only reason the players he picked didn't play well. Granted, if they had, would they have had a chance of winning, regardless of the fact there was no number six and a left winger out of form? Or from the opposite end of the pitch and argument, had N'Golo Conte not played like a six and a left winger and indeed everything in between, would Chelsea have prevented City from executing the game plan that Pep had promoted with his team selection so successfully? All these very unnecessary rhetorical questions are a clunky device used to arrive at this point. The two things can be true. It seems obvious, but when assessing a big game in particular, it appears that we are either incapable of coming to this conclusion or processing it once we have. Each match and bigger matches even more so are about the preparation and then the performance. You can prepare perfectly, but if it's followed by a poor performance or woe betide another team on the pitch that can affect that performance, that preparation is rendered pointless. Sometimes you prepare appallingly, but the performance can cover those cracks. So why do we hold in our hands only one singular narrative after a big game when two things can be true? And it is therefore only fitting that we start back in 1995 and we consider Andy Hinchcliffe's preparations and indeed Everton's for the FA Cup final. Chinch, how much did the preparation affect the performance and was it one or, or both that meant that you won that game? Well, this is what I've been, again, looking back on, on even my time in football, not just that final, but virtually any game that we we played, whether it be at Man City, at Everton, at Sheffield Wednesday, it the focus was always on, on us. So if we looked at, say, our formation or our personnel, it, it was very rare. Virtually, I, I can't remember a time where we would change because of what the opposition were doing. We would just tell coaches would take care of ourselves. This is the way we play. This is who's going to be in the team. We, we stick to trying to do what we're good at. The only thing we might look at for the opposition is kind of set pieces, that type of thing, or who might play in, in a different position. The challenge for a fullback or something might be slightly different, but we didn't change our team or change our formation 
because of who we were playing against. We, we would pit ourselves and how we play against the opposition. Normally, you're probably thinking, well, if you're away at Man United, you probably know what's going to happen. But we would never say, right, we're suddenly going to go to a back five here and just defend our way to a... We never t I can't ever remember a time where a coach would say, we're, we're changing, <clears throat> the personnel's changing because of who we're playing. That clearly has changed enormously over the years where coaches will assess what he thinks the opposition is going to do, what then his team needs to do with all the options he's got is available to him. We didn't seem to have those options available to us. And in that cup final, basically, again, the same thing happened. We, the team, you kind of knew what the team was going to be because of, of how we'd gone through the competition. So you got momentum. Again, we were good at certain things. So why would you chop it around? We, we knew probably what the United team was going to be. The only thing we really looked at was, again, set pieces and how certain areas they might put us under pressure. But we didn't adapt to them. We stuck to what we were good at. And if I don't know, if we, if we had started thinking about them, we'd have come unstuck completely. So we did the right thing. But that, again, was 95. And, and things have changed enormously. But people talk about it being, is it overthinking when you look at the opposition all the time and you try and second guess them and then pick a team to, to beat the team that you think they're going to play? Does that then bring complications? Because that presumably is what modern coaches do now. And there's so much rotation in, in opponents as well that, yes, they can play two or three different formations. Personnel could be six or seven changes from the, from the from the previous team. So you have to constantly assess. Surely it's about adaptability though, isn't it, as well? Because once you say, because you don't know what the opposition are going to do. When Pep picks his team, he's surely picking his team. He's thought about Chelsea, but again, he's thinking this is the best team to, to, to play in the best way to beat that team. Once he sees their team and sees how they play, surely then... It is about adaptability and saying, oh, right, they're doing that, are they? So maybe we need to shift things around or there's substitutions that need to be made to affect the game. But in that City-Chelsea game, I only saw the second half because I was travelling back from the Championship playoff final. Chelsea were absolutely sensational. They got everything right. Individually, collectively, they were brilliant. I think City had one shot on target for the whole game. That tells the story about how good Chelsea's game plan was. But again, I think they played to their strengths. Their team wasn't that much of a surprise, really, and they all played well, and City didn't play well and weren't allowed to play well. But I think the change is we, we never used to really... We did consider the opposition, but we didn't change what we did because of the opposition. Everything you've said makes sense, but have you considered this one other point that will make me feel cleverer than you? Funnily enough, I think the thing that, that shows how well Chelsea did play is the fact that they only had two shots on target in the entire yeah. game, scored one of them and didn't look like they were very much under pressure. Uh, yes, in terms of possession, but not in terms of chances created against them. Before we move on from, from 1995, Chich, I just wanted to ask you, because you, you didn't play left back. Gary Ablett was left back. Yes. And you, you played yes. ahead of him. Roy yeah. Keane played on the right-hand side of midfield, which led to an absolute gargantuan, titanic battle of, of, of great a battle players, which, of minds and bodies. Which you, hands down, won. Oh, easy by a goal to nil. Yep. So, so how often had you played in that position with Gary Ablett behind you, either in the cup run or indeed at all? That's a good question. I remember playing in the, the first round, I remember playing at left back and scoring the winning goal against Derby, which really set us on our way, which it, it really did win the competition for us. That, that goal, a spanking yeah, goal from 20 In many ways, that was the cup final winning goal. It was. Goal. I felt that at the time, Steve. But um, yeah, Gary, again, what we needed to do, I had played there a number of times, so it wasn't it wasn't an issue. It wasn't like we were playing two left backs because of what United might have down their right hand side. It was, again, because of the personnel, it was a solid back four. And again, we had, because obviously the set pieces that I could, again, hopefully bring to bear the, the quality I had there as well. But it was it was a very solid setup. But again, it wasn't picked to play Man United in the FA Cup final to nullify them and, and, and keep their score down to zero and we pinch a goal. That wasn't the plan. If you look at the rest of the team, Anders Limpar, Paul Rideout, Graham Stewart, we had enough quality in the team to, to win the game and, and we did. So again, no, it wasn't as if I played there to kind of double up and, and, and stop them playing down that side. We had played that way a, a number of times. I had played in midfield as, as, as well. So... Yeah, again, that, that wasn't a kind of a plan for United. It was playing, hopefully, to our strengths, and it worked perfectly. But how would you feel as a player, Chinch? Because the circumstances surrounding this Champions League final is that Manchester City played 61 games last yeah. season, and they started just two of them without either Fernandinho or Rodri. Yeah, it was a surprise. In the starting lineup. Yeah, yeah. So when you have built to this climactic point of the season, and despite being Premier League champions, despite winning the EFL Cup again, this was the climactic point of Manchester City's season. And we give Pep Guardiola a huge amount of deserved credit for the way that he has revolutionised the way that football is played in England, in particular since he arrived with Manchester City and across the whole of, of Europe. 
from his time with Barcelona and Bayern Munich previously. And we also, something that we give him a huge amount of credit for is his ability to take this talented squad of players, but to make them something even more than they than they already are. That is why he is defined as a super coach. Mm-hmm. So why does he have these kryptonite moments where when it matters most, he does something that they seem ill-prepared for? And what message does that send to the players in the dressing room? Well, depending on how much they worked on this, I suppose if you look at the actual personnel, you'd say, well, it's still a very good team. But again, it's not structured in the way, as you say, as he had structured teams. I was travelling back from the Championship playoff. Literally within a minute of that team being announced, I had a call from a, a guy who works this guy, a City fan, absolutely crazy about them. And he, he, he rang me up, I answered it, and he said, what is Pep doing? And I said, I haven't seen the team, but I had an inkling that this is what it was going to be. I don't know why. And he said, there's no Fernandinho, there's no Rodri. What is he doing? Is he overthinking? So immediately the City fans were thinking, hang on. So I guarantee the players were maybe saying, this is a little bit unusual. But again, did he do it for the shock value of Chelsea seeing that team sheet and thinking, oh, hang on a minute. What was the reason? But it didn't make any sense from the structure of the team. You have Fernandinho, you have Rodri to free up those players around you, to get your fullbacks forward, to allow your attacking players a lot more freedom. That's why you have these players. Presumably that's why he bought these players and he plays them and they've had success doing that. So was it, again, it is a strange departure from what has, has proved successful this season. Was it was the major reason behind it so that when Chelsea see it, they suddenly think, well, City are going to be a lot more on the front foot than we thought. They haven't got that holding midfielder, so we then have to play a bit more conservatively or adapt again. Was it done for shock value? I'm presuming he's done it because he thinks that team is what he needs to beat Chelsea after losing to them in the league. I can only, again, we're speculating on why you would go down that road, but you buy players like Rodri and you have players like Fernandinho, you would presume for games like this to give you the balance that you need because you knew that Chelsea were going to be hard to break down. They are dangerous going forward. So if you don't get the balance right, you've got a big problem. So City fans were surprised by it. I'm sure the City players were. I bet Fernandino and Rodri were a little bit confused about why they weren't involved in this game, or from, from the start, certainly. And maybe it was the shock value, was it, that Chelsea were completely surprised? But they didn't seem surprised. They actually thought, you know what? I think Joe Cole, actually, I was just watching some of the punditry, and he said, I fancy Chelsea's chances a lot more now seeing that City team. So maybe, and actually, rather than working for City and against Chelsea, it gave Chelsea a bit of a lift. Can I just take a second to make a really obvious point, but use quite long words to make it seem like it's profound and different, when in reality, it's just something that everybody knows already. Well, here's the funny thing, because the, the logic that Pep Guardiola had in picking that team does make sense, in that the previous two games against Chelsea, he felt like City had a lot of the ball in front mm. of Chelsea, who were who were set up in a very, very strong, structured, defensive way. And he thought that the, the way that City played in front of that, that team that they were up against was too slow. So starting it with a pivot always meant for Pep, apparently, that, that it was a little bit too slow. And he needed mm. Gundogan there to, to allow for the tempo to increase and therefore make it more difficult for a, for a structured defensive team set up in front of them, 10 players, maybe 11. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Make, make yeah. it harder for them to be able to defend that, which is, which is a theory and a principle that he has adopted in the past. So the logic makes sense. So the question that I'm trying to get to the bottom of today is that given that that is a logical a, approach, and given that it makes sense for him to do that, and given that it it was a slight change as opposed to, for example, Lyon last summer, which was yeah. a massive change, full formation change to three at the back. What? Why is it being considered the only reason why Manchester City lost that game? Those eleven players in that those positions, which are not not at all alien either to them yeah. or to our sense of expectation, even with this overthinking narrative, why is it? that that is the singular reason why City won that game. Why can it not also be that City, those yeah. players, played badly, and Chelsea, who funnily enough, did not change the way that they played, played completely consistency in all of those three games that City lost against them. Why is it not that they, with that formation, with those set of players, played better than City and therefore won the game? But who, who is saying that that was the only reason that City lost? Coverage. 
Right, okay, okay. But again, it's an easy narrative to follow because it has happened in the past. But I, I agree with you. It clearly wasn't true on this occasion. Steve, you wanted to say something? Well, I, I, look, Hugh is being deliberately contrary to try and lead us down a path towards coming up with an alternative conclusion. And there are always multiple factors as to how a game plays out and who is the winner and who is the loser. But ultimately, you have to start from a point of giving your team the best opportunity to win the game. Yes, as Chelsea had previously twice proved, they are capable of beating Manchester City. They did it in the Premier League. They did it in an FA Cup semi-final. And you can understand, as Hugh has just described, why Pep Guardiola felt as though he needed to find an alternative solution or to try and do something to destabilise Chelsea, to have them thinking a little bit differently to try and wrong foot them. Those are all absolutely admirable thought processes which you can accept and understand. Mm -hmm. But you only need to look at the way that the Premier League finished. Manchester City finished 19 points clear of Chelsea at the top of the table. They are a superior team to Chelsea. On balance, they would win games between them more than 50% of the time, just in terms of the quality of players at each respective coach's disposal. So the reason that people are honing in on, on the selection and Pep Guardiola's role in City's defeat is that they can see that there is a coach there who hasn't given his players the best opportunity of winning the game. That is, that is the state of play before you then get to the further components of why that 90 minutes played out as it did in the those Chelsea players who were very familiar with what was expected from them from Thomas Tuchel were able to raise their game once again against the superior opponent and get the better of things in what was a, a very tight and, and, and well-balanced game even though you felt as though Chelsea were on top because you could see that they were playing above themselves and Manchester City were seemingly unable to get to the level that we know they are capable of. And that those are two factors that distort your view as, as, you, as you watch it from afar. I'd like to know what Andy thinks before making a point that completely contradicts him. So I think we're, we're understanding the preparation, we're understanding the thinking behind the team selection. But yeah. then as we say, it moves on to, right, performance now. Hmm. And what happens again if, if Chelsea don't allow you to put that plan into effect, then you have to think, right, we have to be adaptable now. We have to do, we have to then think again and thinking on your feet while they're getting, because again, it's down to the, sometimes the opposition, you can only play as well as the opposition allow you. If you put the ball out of play and your passing's poor, yes, you, you're to blame for that, but City, very rarely that happens. But if the opposition deny you the game that you want to play, then it's about adaptability and that, it's about how you perform, isn't it? That's the, that's the whole point. Is yeah. that the whole point that either in a contrary fashion or indeed I'm actually trying to make it, which it could, could be both reasons. Let's let the listeners decide. I will never reveal. It's how the, two things can be true at once, isn't yes, it? Again? I think, yes, I think of it may have something to do of with that. Course. Look, yes. of, of, course, of course they can, but you need the solid foundations to build from in order for the other things to go in your favour. Steve makes a really good point. But has he considered this? They are building from a foundation, to take the phrase and to, to shift it slightly in terms of time, they are building on a foundation which had been set in those first two games against Chelsea, the games that he had played against Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea, very different to the one in the new year, which was against Frank Lampard's Chelsea, which mm -hmm. they won convincingly and played some of their best football. It was one of the pivotal results of the season for, for Pep Guardiola and City and them eventually winning the league. But... Having played against Chelsea, who were consistent in terms of their tactics, he realised, or at least he thought, that he wanted to change it to reflect their inability to win the first either of those first two games. So would it actually not have been even sillier if Pep Guardiola had picked the same team, the team that you expected, who played against Chelsea and the same outcome took place. So the tinkering that he did, whether it's due to just sensible reaction to those two previous games, which were in the recent past, or overthinking and the narrative that is associated with that, was it surely not actually more sensible for him to do that? And then what the, the biggest issue that might have end, ended up contributing to their defeat was the fact that not that he had Ilkay Gundogan in a pivot position or he didn't play Rodri or Fernandinho, is that he stuck with a player... Raheem Sterling 
on the left wing, who's completely out of form, had City's best chance, certainly the first half, and displayed that poor form in not taking that chance. Surely it's those, it's the performance-related issues yeah. that overshadow the preparation and have a much, much bigger effect, or at least equal effect, hence two things being true at the same time. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right in terms of his, his thinking. Again, it wasn't as drastic as, as we've seen him change formations and personnel and you're just wondering what the hell is going on there. But I suppose into, if you're looking at one player, a player who has played well in, in a certain position or a different position this season is Gundogan. Gundogan as an attacking midfielder has been sensational this season. So again, who am I to say that Pep got it wrong? But a player who had done so much in advanced areas this season... Again, take to take that player, and yes, he can play deeper. He can be a holding midfielder. He has that versatility. But from what we've seen from him, was this not the perfect game when you've got a, a defence there very well drilled to play him a little bit further forward? And again, Raheem Sterling, I was a little bit surprised he started the game considering the form that he has been in. So I suppose that's the only two in terms of Gundogan. Yes, he's always going to start, but where he actually operates from, and Sterling actually starting the game. But in terms of the plan and what happened previously against Tuchel's Chelsea, I can understand it completely. And then it's down to the players. But then, surely, ultimately, it the book stops with the coach. If, if things aren't working, you've got to say, well... Now we've got to adapt. We've got to maybe take a player off. We've got to move a player forward. We've got to then think on our feet because this is not going the way that I thought it would. Ideally, playing it on a, uh, planning it all out pre-match. Yes, great. Everything's going to work out well. We're going to win four nil. But if it's that's not happening, the opposition not allowing you to do that, and your own players are hindering that happening, surely that's when you really. And that's why I think coaches. I think it's easy enough to pick teams and have a plan in your head before a game, but in game. Adaptability, I think, is, is very, you have to think so quickly and have maybe advice as well from people watching the game from different areas to enable you to change. And to change, I think, is ultimately what wins games. Everything you've said makes sense. But have you considered this one other point that will make me feel cleverer than you? Kevin De Bruyne, who'd been brilliant all season, didn't play well. John Stones, rejuvenated this season, all, yes, didn't, yeah, didn't yeah. play well. Uh, uh, Alexander Zinchenko didn't particularly find himself in the position as that extra six that he wants him to be particularly successful. And the, the goal came from from Carl Walker being out of position, chasing a ball which John Stones followed him to, and it yeah. created the gap inside of John Stones. So mm. people didn't play well, they made mistakes, and that isn't necessarily, it could be part of it, but it isn't necessarily just because of the team that Pep Guardiola well, That's That's really interesting. In commentary, I do say this a lot of people, go, you know, why is, has this team been beaten? And a lot of the time it is, well, the players just simply didn't play well, didn't pass the ball well enough, didn't move well enough, didn't make runs for each other. It's not tactically or something mind-blowing you're absolutely right but it's sometimes it, that's not enough players not playing well you can't say that these are international players who've won everything yes but on this day four or five six of them didn't play well enough simple as that and that is a is a reason it's not a cop out saying i don't really understand tactically why it went wrong those players simply didn't play well or weren't allowed to play well because they were nullified apologies once again for being the voice of the common man coverage but <laughs> whilst that is true that individual players could have played better do you not deliver your most exceptional performances when you are most comfortable with the role that you have to play? And that is true in, in any sort of walk of life. It's not just true, about yeah. elite athletes. And whilst those Manchester City players could have performed at a higher level in that game, surely the chances of them delivering their very best are provided by them being asked to do that in an incredibly pressurised and high-octane environment by following the path that they have been on under that coach for majority of his tenure. He has so, worked so does... tirelessly, he's worked tirelessly, Pep Guardiola, to get those players drilled and playing at a level which wows us week in, week out. So why, when you get to the critical, arguably the most difficult game, the one that could potentially define his era as Manchester City coach, do you not try and reach that pinnacle by taking the path that you have been following rather than a tangent which may or may not play out in your team's favour? But how far off the regular path was he? Are we talking about, you know, look at you talk about the players playing in their correct positions and being comfortable playing. Apart from Gundogan playing a little bit deeper, it, it wasn't, it weren't asking players to do something that they hadn't done before. But, I, but, but, but we constantly get told about fine margins at the very top level, mm. Chinch. 
Mm. And and you both watch City much more regularly than I do. It always feels to me that one of the toughest things of playing against Manchester City is even when you do get the ball back off them, it's nigh on impossible to do anything other than give it straight back in a slightly less dangerous position from which you were able to briefly win it. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that is that there's nowhere to go. Yeah. Opposition players find the ball at their feet, they look up, there is nowhere to go. So you either just boot it forward or you try and find a pass into what you assume is going to be space. But that's but why that's, the Chelsea goal. That's why the Chelsea goal was so brilliant because they absolutely exactly. used City's how City play against them. But it took the quality that Chelsea had to make that happen. But by making those tweaks, even if they were relatively minor tweaks in the grand scheme of things, suddenly there was that pathway out. Yeah, Chelsea, and it was the pathway that they used to score the goal. And if you look, I know you use this. Um, who scored quite a bit, Chinch, for your, for your average position. I've just looked at that. I've just done and the I, same and thing I, and looking at where, and where I, Gundogan yeah. and Bernardo Silva were playing. And if you, if you look at Manchester City's average positions from that game, they are heavily weighted on Manchester City's left. And the goal came down Manchester City's right. The flick inside from Chilwell, the pass from Mason Mount through a gap that would not normally be there when you're playing Manchester City. And Chelsea had the pace going forward to exploit and stretch City's defence in a way that they are not often exploited. Steve makes a really good point. I'd like to know what Andy thinks. Yeah, I, th- I think that's why you have to say, well, if that is... But if you play the way that they do and try and play the game in the opposition half and squeeze and press, and normally the opposition isn't good enough to play through them or play or bypass them, or Ruben Diaz is always there or John Stones is always there, a slight imbalance, yes, you can be caught out by not any team, but it has to be a good... But again, Chelsea still had to have... The, the knowledge that they could use that against City and then also players thinking we're going to have to do a lot of defending, sitting behind the ball, but when we get it back, bang, bang, we can catch them out. And yes, City did make that error that ultimately did cost them again. Sinchenko's positioning was all wrong because he had the ability to stop that happening. He just basically doesn't stay goal side of his man. If he just runs goal side of his man, I, he doesn't get in. The, so again, Chelsea's still trying to use how City play against them. It could have been avoided if Sinchenko's positioning had been a little bit better. So again, it is just to get the fine margins. You're absolutely right. But I just don't... I, I think you have to lay the defeat. Is, is it City got something wrong to lose or Chelsea got something or lots of things massively right to win? Yes. And watching the second half in particular, I tend to think it was the latter, is that Chelsea's set up their formation, their attitude, their approach was was quite brilliant. Uh, this Yes, we, we, we must reflect that part of it because it has been a little bit city myopic. So uh, I mentioned Gola Conte at the beginning and he was brilliant. And the reason oh, that like he was... three men, didn't he? Exactly. Incredible. So, so this is the point. The way that City wanted to play was to try and increase the tempo, short passes in the, the most congested areas to try and run Chelsea out of position and therefore exploit the gaps that that mm-hmm. created. Now that, that is Pep Guardiola 101. But what N'Golo Conte was able to do is able to match the tempo that they were trying to create and also stop it from happening so he was in the right position the right time he was able to be there and to stop Manchester City from creating those those positions that they wanted to be in and therefore obviously put Chelsea in themselves a position that allowed them to counter-attack so you're right another instance of some more than one thing being true Mm -hmm. you will try and plot a course that nullifies the abilities that N'Golo Conte has but if he is able to match that and even as turned out more successfully counteract that then clearly that's another crucial reason as to why they lost that game. But in the same way as the fact that Pep Guardiola overthinks these big late stages Champions League games has become something of a cliche, which leads to the general coverage being the perception that once again, at the critical moment, he got it wrong. So true, brilliant as Angolo Kante was, there is the gag line that 70% of the world is covered in water the rest is covered by N'Golo Conte. That hasn't come about as a consequence of last weekend's Champions League final. It has come about as a consequence of his performances for both Leicester and Chelsea since he arrived in the Premier League. Mm. So Pep Guardiola, Manchester City, knew that Chelsea had a player at their disposal capable of doing what Conte did. 
in Porto. So why would you choose to weaken the spine of your team when you know that in the spine of their team, they have a player capable of delivering the perfectly executed, exceptional central midfield performance? I'd say Steve is 95% right. Can I just take a second to make a really obvious point? Well, I, I suppose you, you, you've got the, the worry that he can do what he did, but you maybe think, well, but still with the players, the formation, the tempo, he still won't be able to get into the spaces and cover the ground because no human being can. But sadly, in that game, he did. So I suppose, well, we again, he must know. He's not that, but he knows exactly how Chelsea and what Conte can do and what he's so good at. But you just think, again, the ball moves quicker than anything else. So there's only so many places that he can be in. But it was extraordinary. And again, yes, we do know how much ground he can cover. And that was just on a, on another level. At the end of the game, it's as if he could play another game as well. His, his energy levels are just off the charts. It's, it's about the law of averages, isn't it? You're like, so Conte has done it in two different Premier League winning sides, two different clubs, and in a World Cup winning side. But it's OK. He's not going to do it in a Champions League final. We'll be OK then. <laughs> It's funny, mentioning Leicester reminds me of an email that we got from Tom Burnell, who's in Portishead uh, recently. And we'll just touch on this as the final part of our conversation about those singular narratives, not only dominating unnecessarily, but also potentially being self-perpetuating because those involved with those narratives don't do enough to stop them from happening or potentially, if you're like Pep, maybe even uh, leaning into them. Portishead, by the way, one of the um, one of the many areas of the southwest of England that I was forced to come via. (laughs) <laughs> on route to my ultimate destination for this week. Uh, in that case, uh, Tom, the, the beginning of Tom's email might interest you. Dear Gloucester, North or South, T-Bay, Norton Keynes, and last and very much least, Gordano. As you know from the WhatsApp um, group, I did make a stop at Gloucester service journey towards the southwest of England would be incomplete without it. Uh, well, Brendan Rogers, this is, this is how Tom's email goes. It's just a little soupçon of it. Uh, you're close enough to France, Steve, so I can use a French word. Uh, Brendan Rogers has managed a Leicester team into two Champions League qualification positions for the majority of the past two seasons, then blown it at the last twice. He also managed Liverpool to a slip-enabled second place in 2013-14. With this in mind, what position do Leicester now hold? Bottle jobs? Unlucky? Is Rogers? A failure? Regards Tommy Porter said, who drives past that dump of the services far too often, um, he says. But this this is the point now, with, ha- with it happening twice, for completely legitimate reasons that sit just outside of the fact that Brendan Rodgers and Leicester might be bottling it, we are now going to associate every end of season and Leicester in those terms. It's the whole Alan Kerbishley thing from, from 20, 15, 20 years ago, isn't it? He's not shaking that off. And Brendan Rodgers might also struggle to do the same because... Frankly, that's it. Either he leans into it or circumstances totally change because otherwise this is how all of Leicester's performances are going to be framed. And there's a danger it becomes self-fulfilling, of course, as the pressure builds. Will they or, or won't they do it? It, it, it becomes a, a highly pressurised situation that they would find themselves in if, if once again they spend a majority of, of next season in the top four and only to, to see perhaps their, their advantage being eroded as it was this season. I feel a little bit sorry for Leicester because they, they had injury problems. They didn't yeah. have anything like the same strength in depth as those other clubs that were, were pursuing Champions League football. And, and as we discussed last week in our sort of conclusions to the season, that more so than ever before, it was resources were going to play a, a big part in, in who finished where in, in the top four, those with the, with the deepest pockets, ultimately managed to find a way to, to navigate their way through the season a little bit more comfortably. So, so Leicester, I guess, if you look at you know the wage bill and and what they've spent on on players compared to to what they've managed to to gain from selling players, that they were always going to be the one that might ultimately just struggle to get over the line. So it's probably two seasons ago where you might look a little bit more closely to try and draw your conclusions on Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, I think we're disappointed for the Leicester fans for for it to have happened again like this. And I'm, I'm sure, like you say, you don't want it to become something. And it will be in the players' minds if they get into this position next season. But again, if you said to Leicester fans, this is going to happen, yet you're going to win the FA Cup. And I guarantee you that the players and the fans would say, OK, we don't want it to happen. We don't want to drop out of the top. But winning something again, that was it. I think it's been a tremendous... I love watching Leicester. I do feel for them slightly in Schmeichel, that final game against Tottenham, the mistakes that were made. But they were a brilliant team to watch this season. I thought they deserved to finish top four, but they won the FA Cup as well. 
a bit of silverware. And I think that balance, it really does balance it out for them. I'm, I'm interested in that, uh, that Steve is happy to accept the nuanced points about Leicester City. But when it comes to trying to make multiple points about Manchester City, no, yeah. stick to the narrative. No, stick I, to I the have, narrative. how dare you? How dare you? <laughs> People are listening to you. They, they know that you're completely revising what's been discussed over the course of the last half an hour. <laughs> I'm more than happy to accept the, uh, the nuanced points. I've just explained that there is often a bedrock from which the nuance is built upon. <laughs> uh, yes, well, it's, it's a good point and a fair one too. The only thing that I wanted to, to, to finally mention is that sometimes those narratives can actually help because there is often a positive narrative that is self-perpetuating and that can help a player or potentially a team go into. So, for example, the whole Dogs of War thing, Chinch, yeah. is that, that, yeah. that that's the kind of thing that, it's become a bit of a cliche, but it's self-perpetuated through that time of Joe Royal, because if you're getting called that and you're consistently performing to help that narrative self-perpetuate, then clearly that's actually beneficial going into a game like, for example, an FA Cup final, because you believe and trust in the process that has led yeah. to you yeah. being called that very thing. I, I wasn't part of the, no, the pack. I wasn't a dog of war. I was, as I've always said, I was the Chihuahua of Destiny. That's a great name for a band, actually, isn't it? Chihuahuas of Destiny. Yeah, add that to um, the list, Robbie. Yeah, but it, uh, those, I, I think Joe actually felt, you know, I understood completely. He was absolutely right. That was a great description of the midfield players and the way they went about things. It, but I, I think he actually felt it was kind of, in a way, it kind of, it, they were very good players as well, very good players as well, as incredibly tough, strong, much more of a man than I will ever be, let alone a footballer I will ever be. But he felt a little bit kind of, he was kind of running his players down. But it was, again, the, the mentality, the togetherness that he was talking about. And absolutely. And we, those players in particular, didn't see it as kind of, oh, you're running down. I'm actually a really good footballer as well. They took on that kind of label and kind of reveled in it and it actually made them grow even more which is a dangerous thing if you're going into a 50 50 with joe parkinson or barry horn <laughs> you better put on a suit of armor and if they feel good about themselves as well oh dear it's like tackling a landmine <laughs> <laughs> but that all plays into the psychology of this doesn't it that, that whole dogs of war thing change must have worked to your advantage in in the opponents perhaps even overestimated Everton yeah, yeah. at yeah, that time. Yeah, in their heads, absolutely. But yeah, exactly. So they thought, oh, it, they, they weren't able to, to look at the situation man for man because th this thing of a collective was was galvanised and, and you were... It was you were sort of people were led to believe that you were greater than the sum of your parts, and that perhaps put them on the back foot when they wouldn't otherwise have been. Yeah, I think and also and, in terms of building ourselves up to say, you know, we're yeah. all in, in this together. We we are a collective. We do have players like you know Anders Limpar, who maybe wasn't quite as 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 doggy of war as as others, but still that gave us again. If people were worried about our physicality or how well organised we were or how our applicant, if you forget about Anders, he he's the guy that will win the game for us. So again, it worked. Again, it got into maybe the heads of opponents because they knew this wasn't going to be pretty. And again, it built us up because we thought, yes, and it, and it was the, the togetherness we had. And I think Joe clearly saw what we had as, as individuals and, and how we felt about each other on and off the pitch. And again, this, this basically was putting petrol on the flames. It just made us feel even stronger. You, you do feel unbeatable when you're on winning runs and when you feel good about yourselves and good about each other. It does. Be, you get to a point where you just feel it doesn't matter who we're playing today. We, we, we're going to win this. But then, so the flip of that, to bring it back to what we've been, you know, more contemporaneous matters, is that for, for Leicester, they're going to have to shake this off, aren't they? That if, if they're third in March next year, there will be the narrative, are, are they going to choke again? That reputation. And it'll start earlier and earlier, won't it? If exactly, they're doing well yeah. at Christmas time, it'll be, well, you know what happens with Leicester at the end of every season. And it's like five months away. And as we already have with Pep Guardiola, We'll get to the, the quarterfinals of the Champions League next season and Manchester City will be playing a rampant Bayern Munich. And it, the, the entire build-up will be, what is Pep going to do this time that comes from left field? And to an extent, you almost feel as though, whilst it, was under, it might be understandable as to why you look to make changes, that if at some point in the last few seasons, at a critical stage in the Champions League, he had just played his best team, and rolled the dice that way instead, that it wouldn't have become such a thing. But because he's got form in that regard, 
that is why we are so heavily focused on that aspect of what happened to Manchester City in the Champions League final. Which also highlights the fact that when it doesn't happen, you don't talk about it. So the quarterfinal and the semi-final, it didn't happen, even though he's playing a false nine and hadn't, at the beginning of that that part of the season in February, hadn't been playing it exclusively up until that point. Do you think people were slightly disappointed that he didn't kind of have this tinkering, which he normally does apparently at this stage of time? It actually went really well, didn't it? Oh, right, okay, he's not going to do that then. So we've got until he does something in the final and then they can go to town on it again. The predetermined narrative shapes the culture regardless of how much that actually contributes to the end result of the match. And that's why sometimes two things can be true. So Chinch, if you were the Chihuahua of Destiny, was Anders Limpar the popular Moranian of truth. Ha 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 Yes, that's a very good way of describing him, the Pomeranian of truth. You had can good... tell the influence that he and I ha- had on that team. <laughs> In the dressing when there was nights out planned, they didn't usually come to myself or Anders and say, where are we going tonight, lads? That was left to kind of Dave Watson, Barry Horn. They ruled the roost. Um, I, yes, I had a good 90 seconds to figure that out. And I just thought about what, you know, hair, hair, lots of hair. Is the Pomeranian the most pampered pooch? Is it the Pomeranian, would we think? I think so. Did, did, did Anders Limpar spend a long time on his hair? I mean, it was fl- the flowing locks of Anders Limpar. You'd imagine he had at least he, he some was... products in. Yeah, but then he did. He did cut his hair as well. He was uh, he was a very good looking man. He wasn't very tall, but he was a very good looking man. And uh, at the fancy dress parties, his bumblebee costume was actually he did actually look like a human bumblebee. It's incredible. Uh, it sounds like we might have already had one, but it is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. <laughs> this is when Andy tells a tale from his playing or broadcasting days. A little adult behaviour and libel where the details removed. Well, it's yet another reason why I'm so pleased that fans are returning uh, to football. Obviously, covering all the games with no fans there, it has been at, at times kind of commentating into a bit of an abyss. We've had to have these augmented soundtracks just so we can work against some noise. And it, it's been really weird. But in the latter stages of the, the Premier League and also with the, the Football League playoffs, we've had a certain number of fans back in the stadiums. And it's been absolutely brilliant. It's really contributed. We had it at Wembley as well for the Championship playoff final. And I'm saying all this because there was um, a game I did, a Reading against Nottingham Forest game where I was up doing a little bit of an interview pre-match and then obviously the managers come up to do their pre-match interviews. And Chris Shooton came up, um, Forest head coach, to do his pre-match uh, chat. And he saw me and he said, uh, you're a bit of a fog. He's a lovely guy and we get on very well, but he said, uh, you're a bit of a foghorn, you, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah. Hi, Chris, are you okay? And he um, he then said, I said, why? why? He said, there's a game we did, I think it was Forest against Derby at Forest where there was no fans and the gantry, normally gantry positions are well away from the technical area. So even though it's an empty stadium, you can't hear anything, but at Forest, the gantry is literally right over the technical areas and right over Chris Hutton's dugout at the city ground. And apparently (laughs) the game that we did, all he could hear was my voice. And I said, hold on a minute. We had a, there was myself and, and Dan Mann were doing the game, but we had Mick McCarthy there as well as like a third voice. Now, Mick is quite a strongly spoken guy. And I thought, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. I said, there were three of us there. Mick McCarthy was one of them. Normally when he whispers, you can hear it 400 yards away. And he said, no, all we could hear during the game was you going on and on. And I said, Chris, I wasn't going on and on and on and on. My job is to talk during a football match to explain what's going on. And he said, yeah, but it it went on. So we couldn't think about substitutions because we were ending up forgetting about the game and listening to you because there's there's like this voice of God coming down. And I said, well, in terms of commentary, that's what I am, Chris. (laughs) So again, it is going to get into your head. But I felt really terrible. I said, oh, and then I started thinking the first thing is, oh, my God, what did I say? Did the game go badly? Did I say Chris shouldn't be there? Or, you know, he's had his time. And he said, no, no, no. It wasn't what you said. It was excellent. I was listening to it. I heard all of it. He said it was just the fact that the whole... The whole game just was my voice. I said, it can't have been the whole game, but he said it, it sounded like it. So thank God that the fans are back to drown me out. So Chris Hewton, and he saw me again the last game of the season. Forrest played Sheffield Wednesday when he came over to me and he now says, hello, Foghorn. <laughs> now calls me Foghorn. So that's now going to stick with me forever, which is incredibly harsh from such a lovely man.
need to work on your uh, yes, your particular accent that allows you to be Foghorn Leghorn, and uh, that would be oh, a yes. feature of commentary. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Uh, thank you to Stephen and Andy. Rory will be returning soon, and thank you to all for listening as well. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. So have I not told you about the, uh, the Anders Limpar Bumblebee? Have I, not? I must have mentioned that before. It's, it's fact, not up to us to archive these things. Unfortunately, it is people who pay more was, attention than we do to remind us of whether we did or not. The funniest <laughs> thing about that wasn't actually Anders Limpar dressed as a bumblebee. It was Matt Jackson actually came in his FA Cup final suit because it was so bad that he felt he could wear it as a fancy dress costume. That was a stroke of genius. Chinch's soccer story is, is maybe remember an early round FA Cup game I did near the start of the season at a League Two ground. And they had to build a temporary gantry on the main stand side of the ground because the the usual gantry that they used was was just not suitable for the. I think it was something to do with the the position of the sun that we'd have been we'd have been commentating with the sun like right in our faces at that time of year at that time. It's either of day. that or asbestos, Steve. That's normally <laughs> yeah. why they move and get temporary gantries. <laughs> so they had to they had to build a temporary gantry, but the problem was is that it was in the main stand hanging right over behind where the dugouts were. And because it was a deserted stadium, everybody on that side of the pitch could hear. I was the only person there. They could hear everything I was saying. And and the director kept having to remind me that via the cameramen pitch side that every word I spoke was, uh, was, was being heard, not just by the coaching staff, but all of the players and <laughs> I might want to save any criticism I had for Did anybody you start finding yourself talking a little bit lower yeah. just in case. Awful. You do, don't you? Because you naturally yeah. think, oh my God. Any, save any critical analysis for when the ball is on the other side of the pitch when fewer people will be aware of what you're saying. Why would you not use this as an opportunity to subliminally trying to affect the game? Oh, I think this person would do really well if they came on. And then magically, 10 minutes later, oh, yeah, I had that idea yeah. and I just put him on. This team is completely game. imbalanced. If I was Chris Shooten, I'd be taking him off and putting on two strikers. And he'd be looking up thinking, what the hell are you talking about? But it is. And then you start to worry about, oh, but you can't speak any. Well, you do. You start to lower your butt. It can still be heard because it's empty. But it is a nightmare and it does affect. Because you do get the odd person kind of looking up at you. You do. And it's kind of, oh, you have to kind of look away. You don't want to make eye contact with the players. At one point in the first half, there was a really bad tackle on on our side of the pitch, which could quite easily have been a red card, but was yellow instead. And as you saw it coming through on the replays, each time the tackle got worse and worse. And so you're, you're calling it as you're seeing it as the replays are coming in. And I had the director in my ear saying, right, brilliant. Now both sets of players, both benches and the referee know that he's got that decision wrong. Congratulations. Oh, brilliant.